today I will not cease my commitment to law enforcement. I will continue to provide information, testimony, documents, and my full cooperation on all ongoing investigations to ensure that others are held responsible for their dirty deeds and that no one is ever believed to be above the law. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the best of Maya Culpa. Happy Thanksgiving, folks. I don't know about you, but I have a shitload to be thankful for this holiday season. As of Monday, I am no longer a guest of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and I am now a free man. Donald Trump's former personal attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, was officially released from prison and house arrest today. As I stated earlier, it does not mean my mission is over. In fact, I am doubling down on my quest to bring Trump and his band of lawless, shitbird co-conspirators to justice. But now and again, even the most dedicated crime fighter must pause for celebration. So, this year, as we cross 15 million downloads, I am reminded of a letter I got from Rosie O'Donnell when I was locked up inside Otisville Prison. I was at my fucking lowest point, unsure of what would become of the life that I had so carelessly flushed away for Donald J. Trump. Rosie showed me so much compassion at a time when many of my closest friends had all but abandoned me. The ones that stayed and the new ones I found are the people who are still with me to this very day. Beyond that, I am eternally grateful for all of you, my podcast army, who tune in week in and week out and have supported me through the thick and thin. I love all of you, but this episode is dedicated to Rosie, a real one. So without further ado, let's go now to that conversation. I'm Michael Cohn, and you're listening to Maya Culpa Podcast. I'm thinking about where I was when the first plane hit the towers, and where I was later when they began to fall. Oh my god, so both towers are now... It seemed impossible, how something so permanent could so quickly cease to exist. I'm thinking about the fear that I felt for my family, for my friends, for the city and country that I love. Then the uncertainty and terror of those days and first few months that followed the creeping dread of another attack always looming. Then I project myself forward through the years, then decades, through time and space itself, always wondering how the choices I made, some random, others deliberate, led me to Donald J. Trump. Now the fear has come back home to roost in the worst possible way. The country seems on the verge of coming apart. The center will not hold. Almost 200,000 people dead. I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. The economy in ruins. Our cities roiled with violence. I am the least racist person. For 11 years, I was President Donald J. Trump's personal attorney and fixer. If you've already read my book, Disloyal, you'll know that I wasn't a lawyer in any conventional sense of the word. I didn't try cases in court. Rather, I made his problems go away. I did the real dirty work. The sex scandals and payoffs, the shady business deals and shakedowns. I smeared his opponents in the press and I lied for him to those very same reporters. I was his gangster in a suit, modeling myself after his mentor, the Prince of Darkness himself, Roy Cohn. Super builder Donald Trump has said, if you need somebody to get vicious, hire Roy Cohn. Here is what the disciplinary committee of the bar says about you. Quote, 
a total absence of moral character and professional fitness. I would do anything that is legally permissible to do to get my client to win. Yes, I would. That's my job. There isn't anything I would not do because I believe there's only one answer in an adversary profession like law, and that is winning. One of the most corrupt and venal figures of the 20th century. A truly evil man who, like myself, was eventually disbarred by the New York State Supreme Court for various offenses. Along the way, he taught Trump how to be Trump, how to accumulate information and wield its currency, and how to disseminate misinformation. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. That the most potent weapon was fear. Attack hard enough and no one will fuck with you. Well, I heard Biden, uh, who's a loser. I mean, look, Joe never got more than 1%, except Obama took him off the trash heap, and now it looks like he's failing. But I heard, he, you know, his whole campaign is to hit Trump. Look, when a man has to mention my name 76 times in his speech, that means he's in trouble. Life is a zero-sum game. There are winners and there are losers. I supported him. He lost. He let us down. But, you know, he lost. So I never liked him as much after that because I don't like losers. There are those with power and clout and those who are suckers. It was to this man, Donald J. Trump, that I sold my soul. And like countless others who did his bidding, sought his favor, or believed his countless lies, the price to pay was ruinous. You see, I am the canary in the coal mine for millions of Americans, mesmerized by Trump. It's important to understand that Trumpism is a disease of the mind, every bit as virulent as COVID. Only the host is a willing participant in his or her own demise. Trumpism insidiously preys upon the psychological makeup of the individual, probing the moral compass for weakness. And I was its patient zero. He's a weak person and not a very smart person. Very simply, Michael Cohn is lying and he's trying to get a reduced sentence for things that have nothing to do with me. So this podcast will serve as my penance, a way to right some of the many wrongs I committed at his behest. I cannot roll back the tide of history, nor can I undo the damage that's already been done. So much destruction has already happened on his watch, and I will carry this shame with me to my grave and to the other side when I meet my maker. But what I can do is help stop its forward advance by lifting back the curtain to show you how it all works. If my book was a recounting of my life and time under the spell of President Trump, this podcast seeks to understand how it all happened and why I was such a willing participant in his crimes and cover-ups. And finally, how we as a nation can stop this Trump horror movie from continuing before generating a sequel far more disturbing than the original. To stop Trumpism from spreading, you must understand Donald J. Trump. But I'm not talking about the boorish cartoon misogynist who grabs women by the crotch, or the gaudy blend of wealth, braggadocia, and machismo. To focus on these elements of the president is to underestimate his considerable powers. That behavior is merely a byproduct of his larger narcissism, that the rules of polite society, or even society at all, apply to him whatsoever. I have termed it Trump derangement syndrome. It is also what's made being around the man so intoxicating at times. To be with him was to feel the electricity of celebrity, to rub up against it. That force of nature that compels us to worship the rich and famous. 
to be next to him was to feel like you mattered in the world. That you were part of a small and exclusive club that was able to bend the very fabric of reality in your direction. The truth was irrelevant. All that mattered was that Trump got his. Many of you will ask how I could have done things that I did for Donald Trump and not realize what I was doing was wrong. That's not the point. I worked in a building where the rules of right and wrong did not exist. That is the true banality of evil. Not that it is all of a sudden apparent, but that evil itself becomes normalized. You see, when you sell your soul, you do exactly that. You sell your soul, but not all at once. Maybe you had a line drawn that you said that you would never cross, but little by little, through your daily actions, that line becomes blurred then erased, your duplicity rewarded time and time again. So to all of you listening, I say wake up, open your eyes, and see the con that's being perpetuated upon you. And remember this, Donald Trump cares for no one or anything other than himself. This is You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only Rosie several, O'Donnell. For the record, it was well beyond Rosie O'Donnell. Yes, I'm sure it was. My first guest today on Maya Culpa is Rosie O'Donnell. I can't say enough about her as a person, other than the woman is truly a mensch. When I first went away to Otisville, I truly thought my life was over. In many ways, it was over at least the life I used to lead. And those first six months were beyond difficult. Sitting in my cell each night with only a few photos of my family and nothing more. My lifeline to the outside world were the letters I received. And out of the blue, around December of last year, the day the president was impeached, Rosie O'Donnell wrote to me the most beautiful six-page letter. I'm not ashamed to admit that I sobbed when I read it, and so did others that were reading it with me. He was a woman who I had helped attack and vilify on behalf of Donald J. Trump, and she reached out to me full of kindness and empathy. That letter was a turning point for me. In Rosie, I saw a better way forward, a way to change and a way to grow as a human being. So when I decided to do this podcast, she was the first person I called. Let's listen to that conversation. So let me start with, Rosie, if we can, the origins of our relationship. Okay. So obviously, I've spoken to you about and appreciative of the letter that you had sent to me when I was in Otisville Satellite Camp. What made you decide to write me? I, it's, it's a question I've never asked you. Well, you know, Michael, ever since I saw you in the public eye, I saw you with him and I saw you, you sound like everybody I went to high school with. You look like all the people I grew up with on Long Island. And I felt like if we were- You must have grown up in a very good looking area. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Only the most handsome. You know, I, I was of course fascinated with the whole Trump situation since 2007 when he went batshit crazy on me. I've been, you know, definitely- uh, interested in him and what he does. And then I kept thinking, who's that guy with him? Who's that guy? Became interested in what was going on in your life before you met Trump. 
what kind of a guy you were before you met Trump? Was all of this sort of under the hypnosis of his cult that your personality seemed to mimic his in some ways? Now, mind you, that's what he was asking of you. That was your job. But it wasn't that he was asking it. He demanded it. He demanded it. Anybody that showed disloyalty to him was immediately rejected and they were fired. They were fired. And the interesting thing is Donald Trump never actually fired him himself. Mm. He would have somebody else do it. Like myself, when we fired Don Jr. and I fired Corey Lewandowski. Right. I read that in the book. He wouldn't do it. People can come back into his good graces, though. Right. Corey was fired. No, and no. No, it's Once extremely you're out, you're difficult. Out. When you're out, you're out. Corey was very smart in what he did. He just kept playing to the sycophantic nature of what Donald Trump needs to feed his ego by doing it on television. But Corey cannot come back in to the main circle because the kids won't let him in the circle. They dislike him as much as I. You and the kids had enough power over him to make him fire Corey or let him allow you to fire Corey Landowski, right? The answer is yes. So he still kind of cares what other people think within his small kind of target of his universe, within that little red zone, which is his children, I suppose, and you were in there. And now he has some new kind of fixers that are doing all of his work for him in the Senate, right? What is it about his personality that allows him to sway all of these people when his history of bad deeds is so long and and specific. The second you walk into that building, it's all about Donald Trump. From the second you walk into Trump Tower, Trump on the outside of the door, Trump on the outside of the elevators, Trump on the inside of the elevators. When you get up to 26, there's two giant glass doors, Trump Organization on it. As soon as you walk in, there's the Trump Organization name on it. Everything is Trump, from the Trump ice water that you drink, all the way to the Trump bar and grill where you get your, your breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I mean, it's all about Trump. He's a cult leader, and why People do what they do. Why, was, why would Attorney General Bill Barr take a, take a career like his and throw it all away for what? For a man who has no moral compass, that you have 15, 20, 30 people all coming out and saying the same thing? Donald Trump on tape now disclaiming that his words aren't really his words. There's no real answer. But you being you, you went in there never having met anyone like him and you were swayed and, and under his influence. And how long would you say? Right away? It was right away. It was right away. It was because in, in the book, you talk about him, him basically hiring you on the spot. It was on the spot. That's where I was going to get to. It was right on the spot. I went in there to discuss with him after handling something for Trump Entertainment Resorts. I went in there to talk to him about a legal bill and my findings. And at the time I was a partner over at Phillips Neiser. He turned around and he said to me, are you happy at that sleepy old firm? And I was happy. I was, for the most part, semi-retired. And I was only working a couple days a week. And I was enjoying finally being able to spend time with my wife and my children and friends. And I said, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, no, no, no. You be better with me. He goes, the fun that we can have, the deals that you're going to be involved with. He goes, I want you to be my personal attorney. 
You're not going to answer to anybody in this entire company except for me. And I'm going to give you the title of executive vice president of the Trump Organization and special counsel to me, Donald J. Trump. My head at the time, I remember the feeling like it happened yesterday. It was almost euphoric. Here I was sitting in Donald Trump's office, Donald Trump himself asking me to be his personal attorney. And I'm saying to myself, I've represented people with far greater wealth than Donald Trump. And I'd never had that same feeling. It's no different than a cult leader. And I fell for that spell, hook, line, and sinker. You know, I talk about in the book, I talk about the part where I was driving myself crazy to find a hook regarding Trump Entertainment Resorts, where he had basically a title only, but he had no power to vote. And I needed to find a hook for him so that he could wield power against them to get what he wants. And even my wife called me stupid for staying awake for hours and hours. And ultimately, when he offered me the job, I had told him how much time I had spent on it and how much the bill was to which he said, Bill, you want, you want to get fired already? I just hired you. <laughs> right. But I want to know what you thought of him before that meeting. What what was your opinion of Donald Trump? Because you grew up in New York. I grew up in New York. I remember his planes being repossessed off the LaGuardia runways. I remember all the stories of what a hoax he was and what a, a con man. And what was your opinion of him before you went into that meeting where he hired you? Celebrity, real estate developer, just um, powerful. I was already an investor in several Trump buildings. Um, Trump World Tower, Trump Palace. I had made substantial money onto it. I bought an apartment for $500 a square foot at the time, and the price went up to $1,500 per square foot. I mean, I made significant money. Um, and I realized that the brand, the Trump brand at that time, had some real serious value to it, whether you liked him or you didn't, whether you wanted to look at the bankruptcy of the Trump shuttle or the Trump entertainment resorts and so on. People don't realize Donald Trump made money off of Trump entertainment resorts. While everybody else, all the bondholders lost money, he did not. He had cashed out early on. And as I was saying before, he didn't have a big percentage of ownership was like 10%. Yeah, he was known to me as a logo slapper. Like everyone says he's a builder. I'm like, well, he's really more of a logo slapper. Except for certain properties like where I live or Trump World Tower. He built that himself, Trump Palace. But they're condominiums, meaning he owned it, but then he sold it. He sold a fee simple absolute to each of the properties. So he technically is in name only and he runs the management on it. Short of that, he really has no vested interest in any of those properties. Now, everything that's foreign is another story. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. We've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, make sure to check out last week's episode with power and strategy expert Robert Green, who rejoins the show to discuss seduction, mastery and seduction, amongst other topics. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. 
So check out the October 21st interview with former CIA director Michael Hayden. His new book, Playing on the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror, is a must-read for anyone interested in understanding 21st century geopolitics. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you decided to work for him, I, I love the part in the book about your personal feelings and your family's feelings. When you talked about going to your son's basketball games, but you would always get a phone call and have to go out and take the call from Trump. What about before you worked for Trump and you went to your son's basketball games? Were you able to sit through and pay attention to your son on the course? Or was you were you always kind of that ADHD, got to go do a, you know things while it's happening? Or were you able to sort of before Trump, give all that time and attention to your kid. From 1995 to 2002, I, along with a partner, had built a pretty massive transportation company, Yellow Cabs, in New York City, where we were running 285 Yellow Cabs. It was a very significant operation. Not only did I have two cell phones, but I had an Nextel radio where I was constantly in touch with the garage. There's a car on fire on Fifth Avenue. There's an auto accident. Um, so-and-so doesn't want to pay for the shift, you know, uh, whatever. And I was constantly at work. I worked during those days from 5 in the morning to 11 at night, seven days a week for seven years straight without a day off. And I promised myself when I was laying on the floor in the garage that I wasn't going to do this for my whole life. I had made a lot of money. The value of the medallions had skyrocketed. New York Times put an article out there that said yellow cab medallions worth more than gold. And it was. And I had over $50 million worth of taxi medallions that today are worthless because of the incompetence of Mayor de Blasio and how they've allowed ride sharing to come in and steal an industry from people who've been involved in this for over 100 years. So when I went to work for Trump, I was technically the second wealthiest person in the office, only behind him. Suffice it to say, I always worked very hard and very long hours. But during this time, I had promised my son, and it wasn't necessarily basketball, it was baseball, where my son was a big lefty pitcher. And he was at that time being scouted by the Yankees, the Mets, the Atlanta Braves, Chicago White Sox. We even went to Chicago for a tryout for their minor league ball team. And this ruined everything for him. He's not even playing college. And for that, I could never forgive Donald Trump and for everything that I ended up going through because of him, which is really, again, on me. So I'm not trying to deflect. It's on me. I allowed him to get me to do things. I own that. Yes. 38% of this country 
is behaving in the same stupid way that I did. And they're following him, whether it's the attorney general, whether it's Jim Jordan, whether it's his chief of staff now, Mark Meadows. They're all playing up to the Donald Trump that he wants you to play to, and he rewards you. I mean, Mark Meadows is now the chief of staff. Why? Because he came out on television chanting the Trump chant, staying on messages, I say. The biggest problem for them is the same thing that happened to me will happen to them because it's happened to everybody else as well. That eventually he will turn on Eventually them. he drops you and he moves on and leaves you holding the bag. This is the man who has taken responsibility for nothing in his entire life. For nothing. And he's so severely mentally ill. He's so unfit. It's kind of hard to believe that we're, we're living in this time where he still has the kind of power that he does after all of these things that keep coming out. What I want to know, though, is the you that I thought I was writing to or the you that the you that I wrote that letter to was more the kid from Long Island than it was this savvy business. Like, I know you grew up on a street where you played kickball like I did. You know, I knew that you were a guy who was very similar in a way, to me. And that's what I thought. That's what I assigned to you when I wrote you that letter and wanted you to know that there were people who were grateful that you had changed your mind, that you had turned on him. There were people that were holding out hope that others would follow your lead and that we would finally be rid of him. So that's why I wrote you that letter. It was the night that he was officially impeached. And I thought, here he is impeached and here you are sitting in prison. Yeah. And how is this fair? So I can only tell you that and I did express it to you when we joined up together on the TrueLink system, the effect that your letter had had on me. It was really a kick to the gut, where now I finally understood, even more so, just how much I had helped him to hurt people, yourself included, going back to that massive first feud. Because yes. you really are. You are the first, the first feud. Yes. And I said this to the Associated Press yesterday, the first feud with the first family, right? And now I have you as my first interview. So what was it that caused the feud? I remember, but I'm sure people don't. Yeah, I was on The View and uh, Barbara was out that day and Whoopi was not on it yet. So it was me kind of moderating and Joy Behar was there. And the Miss America Junior client of his who had won the contest was down at a bar in the East Village and kissed a girl and the Post got a picture of it and ran a whole story. So right before we went on the air, Trump called a press conference and the girl Tara, I believe her name was, was crying and saying, thank you, Mr. Trump, for giving me this second chance. And, you know, and I was like, who is he as the moderator of what good behavior is for teens? You know, this guy who's been married all these times, had affairs on all his wives and this guy's not a self-made man. This guy got his daddy's money and then ran it all into the ground. And all things that were readily available to anyone in the news media on Wikipedia, on Google. You, these were not things that I was making up about Trump. These were facts about Trump. And I put my hair over like every comedian did in the lifetime of, of being a stand-up with Trump in the reality of of the world. I put my hair over and I did, you know, uh, how his mouth gets like this when he talks. And I just did an impression of him. And truthfully, I didn't think much of it. And then it was Christmas break. And then all hell broke loose. And I guess you were involved with that, with that hell, you know, that he was so upset at what I said, or that I would have the audacity to talk about him 
where he thinks himself as royal and he thinks of everyone else as, you know, a loser and a sucker. Well, we're all, technically, we're all serfs and he is the king, right? Ah. But I will tell you that there was a, a guy in the office who's a um, very funny guy and he used to describe that face that you were referring to as if Donald Trump was sucking on a lemon and someone farted in his face. Yeah, that's exactly, that's a good one. Yeah, I've never forgotten that one. Did the employees talk about him behind his back like that? Yes. Did people treat him like he was a joke in his own company? I wouldn't say the word would be a joke. It was more that he was insane and that it was almost became our responsibility to stop him from doing his own bidding, mm. to stop him from being himself we spent so many hours, so many hours fixing the things that he would say or do. And then there are times that you just can't fix it. And then it really became somebody else's fault. He never takes responsibility for anything he does. Right. Trump University, for example. It was always our fault. Right. Alan Garten sent off papers that he shouldn't have sent to the government based upon a subpoena. As many times as we would tell him, what are you talking about? If you delete them or you get rid of them, it's a crime. He doesn't care. The law doesn't apply to Donald Trump. I had the ability to say to him, and I had on certain occasions, stop. You just, you can't do things like this. But the result of something like that would be an anger from him that is so great and so severe that you just say, okay, let somebody else deal with it. Because you don't want that. You want it to stop. You just want it to stop. It's like an abusive parent. But I did want to ask you, when I asked you to come visit me and you said yes, it was, for me, it was an incredibly touching moment. And I expressed to you how thankful I was. But tell me about the day that you came, you drive up to Otisville, seeing me in my greens in that environment. That was the first time that we actually met. So we had had a lot of email conversations before this. And the only other time I had been to a prison, aside from, you know, speaking to young girls and women charity wise, but to visit someone was Martha Stewart. You know, when you asked me, I was very touched to tell you the truth. And I thought, I'm going to go see what he's about. If I was right in my uh, assumption of what his character really is. And when I drove up there, it was a long drive. And I remember thinking what it must have felt like for you to drive up there. That's what I was thinking as I was going up and knowing I was getting out. And then when I got there, it was quite a different experience than I had expected. It is like a little bit like Camp Cupcake. There's not like barbed wires and armed guards. And the, the area that you were in in Otisville was safer than I imagined it to be. I was worried that you were going to be in there with, you know, thugs from an episode of Oz, you know, on HBO all those years ago. You were very familiar to me, Michael. That's all I can say. You were familiar to me when I used to see you speaking for him and think, I know that guy. It's, it's funny you say that because you felt familiar to me also, like people who I grew up with. Mm. You know, I, you know, I had the FBI contact the, the, the uh, commanding officers over at Otisville to let them know that there were some very ugly letters and phone calls made to the institution about coming after me. So it's really a very uncomfortable position to be in. And tell me about some of the ones that 
you experienced as well. And I'm so sorry that anybody had to go through this. Yeah, you know, Michael, it wasn't really that his people came over to me because they, you know, I don't really travel in the circles where a bunch of older, rich Republicans are. Like, it's not like my real world. You know, I too have five children and and I'm in the suburbs mostly and I have a little seven-year-old baby, but it wasn't necessarily what it did to uh, people like Trump fans. It was more like what it did to my kid. You know, like my, my kids were so little in 2007 and they were all like, well, what's going on with this? What's happening? Why? And I said, well, I told some truths about this man and he's very upset that I did. And he didn't like the jokes that I made and he didn't like the truths that I told. And so it was hard for my children. It was hard for for them. But I never really had a person come over to me and say anything, if you can believe that. I never really had. Some people would be like, hey, Trump, just like, you know. And I'd be like, yeah, he's one hell of a guy, huh? And sort of leave it at that. But it was relentless for me for like, you know, a, a decade. And that first year after I did it, it was like he did every show possible to disparage me. <laughs> like Every time I I took my kids to a sports bar and I put on the, the TV was all sports and there on some sports channel was Donald Trump going, yeah, Rosie O'Donnell, that degenerate, you know. Uh, I don't know. It was like a surreal experience for me. It was totally surreal. And I knew that he wasn't well, doing well, it. Well, Rosie, remember, at least at least you're in good company. You sit with me because I seem to get under his nerves, too. Every time I say something, every time I do something, right, I seem to get under his nerves also. Well, have you heard anything about the reaction to your book, Disloyal? I mean, have you heard from anyone in their, you know, gang that would let you know what, what the response is? Well, of course, Kaylee McEnany put out a statement that it's a lie, that all I'm trying to do is, you know, I'm a convicted liar and that this is only a way of profiting off of my lies. And they had another spokesperson inside. It's the standard. It's yeah. the standard Trump bullshit. Right. right. It's deny, 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 deflect, 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 denigrate, denigrate, denigrate. That's all he knows how to do. You know, I, I, I want to just to bring up, you know, when you saw what was happening to me with mm -hmm. Trump, yeah, that now it was the tables had turned and it was now somebody else that was receiving the full force of the attacks. How, right. did, you, how did that make you feel? Was it a reminiscence of what had happened to you? Yes, totally. Whenever he went after anyone with, you know, ferocity and when when he uh, would would really do something to uh, humiliate uh, someone else, it would strike me viscerally. I would be like, wow, that's uh, pretty um, for you. I, I thought how 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 sweet this is going to be when he finds redemption for this. Like, I don't know why, but it was always a redemption story to me, Michael. When I even saw you with him, it's like, they don't go together. In my mind, you're the kid from down the block. Like, I, I didn't understand, like, how you could have become like him so easily. But if somebody survived Jonestown and they didn't drink the Kool-Aid and they pretend they were dead and they were even the child of Jim Jones, we would have compassion for them. We would be able to say, look... Yes, it was the child of him. Yes, he acted in a very bad ways. But you have to have compassion for, imagine being microwaved by that kind of energy from the time you were a little baby. All of that negativity and that absence of feeling and 
looking into sort of dead eyes, like what does that do to a child, right? So I didn't have any schadenfreude. I didn't have any, oh, now it's his turn. I thought that you had done the right thing by turning on him, by telling the truth. And I was just proud that you had gotten there. Trump pretended the coronavirus wouldn't come to our shores. I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. The risk to the American people remains very low. He pretended the Democrats were overreacting. And this is their new hope. He pretended it would go away. A lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat. And then he pretended again. It's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. View this the same as the flu. And again. At some point, uh, that's going to sort of just disappear. And again. It's going away now. It'll go away. While Trump pretended, Americans faced real consequences. Nearly 200,000 dead and rising. Businesses closed. And now, as over a thousand Americans die each day, what's the Trump administration's plan? Pretend that the pandemic is over. In a time of crisis, Americans can't afford to have a pretend president. I wanted to always play it down. Midas Touch is responsible for the content of this advertising. Welcome to Missed Riffs, stories of artists who dreamt of becoming the next Rolling Stones but ended up rolling burritos instead. Can I get extra guac on that? I'm Matt Pinfield. Today we are looking at an actual success story. Legendary Ford Bronco pitchman John Bronco was known for his bushy mustache, incredible catchphrases, and machismo exterior that made him one of the most popular TV pitchmen in history. This truck's tougher than your mama's daddy, so hit the road. It's got my name on it, so you know it plays dirty. Yes, baby, it's meaner than a wet panther you forgot to invite to your birthday party. Huh. But not many people knew Bronco actually had a pretty successful music career. The story goes, one afternoon, John was doing some Ford radio promos when he found a guitar in the booth. It changed his life forever. Mama, she named me Bronco. Cause I'm tough as nails, there's no place I can go. The track Mama Named Me Bronco is the only commercial jingle ever to go triple platinum. Yeah, man, I was the engineer on that session. It was like it was like watching Jimi Hendrix cut Foxy Lady or like Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire or you know, Limp Biscuit, Scott Stapp, you know, just so heavy. I mean, you just knew you were capturing something like historic. John Bronco even knocked Jackson Brown off the top of Bob Magazine's Hottest Dudes in Rock number one ranking. I love you, John Bronco. The new Ford Bronco. Cause daddy wants a pony too. John Bronco also had a classic jingle he wrote for his breakfast cereal, Bronco's, called Get Bucked. Hi, who's ready for breakfast? Get bucked with super flavors. This bucket Bronco's gonna kick you out of bed with an oat crunch and a hint of sharp cheddar and pineapple cherry flavored gummy horseshoes. The track was later covered by reggae band Rasta Rasta and became a huge hit in Europe. John Bronco! Oh no! Get ready to shred the roof of your mouth! Oh yeah! To learn the whole story, check out John Bronco and John Bronco Rides Again, currently streaming on Hulu. I'll leave you with Bronco's final song, The Ballad of John Bronco. 
go go bronco mode it's gonna be insane we're going all to rain grab your four by four we're gonna take off all the doors there's plenty of features you'll enjoy so buckle up there cowboy go go bronco mode go go bronco mode bronco Now, that was another fascinating thing. When you and I spoke at Otisville, you told me about how many letters you received, that mine was by no means the only one, if supportive of you. Thousands. 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 There were, there were times that basically three quarters of the, of the bag that carried the mail was for me. And I would have all of the inmates come to my cube and I would read them. I mean, we had wonderful people. Like there was, um, there was a nun and um, her name was Sister Mary Margaret McCleary, and she was from uh, Massachusetts. And she would write the sweetest prayers, and she would sign it with a smiley face with a halo, just a kind, kind person. And we had another woman named Ann Zielinski, who was from Catonville, uh, Maryland. Another sweetheart who involved us in every aspect of her life. She just became a grandmother. The grandchild was not doing so well at birth. He was a preemie. You know, she would call him Poodle. And all the guys that the, would line up, you know, inside for a reading. And everybody became sort of involved with all the people who were writing to me. And I received thousands of books. And I would just donate them to the library after I would read them. And letters. And we would read them. And I saved most of them. Well, what did you feel when you got all the? Were you expecting support like that from the public? I know you said you were never expecting it from me when I wrote to you. Were you expecting it from strangers? I didn't expect it at all. And for the moments that we were doing those readings, I felt the sense of ease and I felt the sense of almost vindication. But then when the last letter was read, and everybody went back to their own cubes or whatever else that they were doing, the reality strikes. And it hits you very hard that here I am staring at a concrete wall, laying in a small little tiny bed that's on a metal mattress, looking at photos of my wife and children. And I realize where I'm at. And I realize where I'm at because of who? Just a disgraceful human being that has the luck and has the, the ability to call himself our 45th president. It's just, it's just a total disgrace. And I think that the country really needs to wake up. And that's, again, the whole purpose of the book, which I think is very similar to your Twitter. I mean, I think that you say it in no uncertain terms. Yeah. Wake up. Wake up, America. We got to wake up now. But he looks so miserable. He looks miserable. He's getting so big. He's leaning forward when he walks. I think, do you think he had a series of mini strokes when he went to 
Walter Reed that time? Do you think that that's what happened? Or what's your opinion of what happened to him when he went to that hospital for the unscheduled visit? Yeah, I really don't know the answer. Um, and I hate to speculate on somebody's health. But one thing I do know, and I talk about this again in Disloyal, I know his ticks and his tells. Right. And he's not the same Donald Trump that took office. He's definitively not the same Donald Trump that I had known working for him for over a decade. He is much worse. Yeah. And his behavior is much worse. He wants to be a ruler. He wants to be the czar. He wants to be a dictator. And it's scary. It's scary. One time when Trump and I were in the country of Georgia, we were with the president, um, Saakashvili, Mikhail Saakashvili. And I'll never forget, he never called him Mr. President. He continuously called him Mr. Dictator. Huh. And when we would drive around together in the motorcade and he would see all of the Georgian soldiers lined up on the street facing the opposite direction, he would be like, now this is the power of a dictator. And I said, no, Mr. Trump, he's the president of a country. This isn't a dictatorship. It's a democracy. He goes, no, no, no. Saakashvili runs it like a dictatorship. I'm telling you, and I'm telling everybody that's listening, the man wants to be an autocrat. Yes. And he's not joking when he says 12 more years. Because one thing you have to know about Donald Trump, he doesn't have a sense of humor. And he doesn't joke. Do you think he thinks he's going to get out of this, that he's going to win? Do you think he uh, feels omnipotent, that he's not going to have to go face the SDNY and all the charges that they have against him? Well, I don't really know what he thinks, right? It's very hard to try to imagine what's going on inside of his head. But what I can turn around and tell you is he's made mention, and I've been with him during these, these conversations, where we talked about Putin and it's somebody who he has a sick fascination with. When Putin, after his second term, decided that he wanted to retain power, but he couldn't be that as president, he made himself into prime minister. And that role superseded the president. Four years thereafter, and I believe it was Medvedev that was the president at the time, four years thereafter, he became president again. And now he wants to just change the Constitution so that he's president for life. But one thing Donald Trump said, which I found fascinating as we were talking about it, it doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the votes. So now when you see what he's doing with mail-in ballots and removing sorting systems and postal boxes, remember that line. It doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the votes. You know, Michael, when listening to him, I can't help but think how stupid he is. He just sounds like a dumb person. And I don't understand how he got all the power that he has not being intellectual. Well, he's, he's extremely cunning and he has no moral compass and he has no empathy. So if you're willing to take advantage of every situation and you have money behind you, you could, I guess, become successful? I don't know the I don't know the answer. But one thing I can tell you is he does not read. Right. He doesn't read anything. He doesn't read books. The only thing he does is he'll pile every day a whole series of newspapers, five, six, ten newspapers. But he doesn't read newspapers for the news. He looks at the pictures. <laughs> no, he actually is looking for his name. And if his name does not appear in the newspaper, it's not a good day to go to him. That's why in 2012, when he started with the whole birtherism, he really enjoyed the fact that he became the birther in chief because every day his name was front and center on a newspaper. 
And the more that he saw his name, the crazier he got and the wackier the things that came out of his mouth were. The wackier the things that he said, instead of being shunned by society for saying these things, instead what happens? They put him on the front page of the newspaper. They praise him. They give him exactly what it was that he wanted. 24-7 news. Mm. All about Donald Trump. Right. He used to make a joke that the news has now become all Trump all the time. A takeoff of, of course, WINS radio. The one thing that when I said to him that all these different politicians were coming to him in 2011, 2012 for endorsement, I came up with this concept because, you know, he acts like a mob boss. They're all coming to kiss the ring. Right. He loved that statement so much. He used it all the time. Michael, do you think there's been a severe cognitive decline since you've known him and to where he is now, where he can't even form coherent sentences? I mean, there seems to be, to me, some really serious impairment. There's definitely something going on there. But I think his bigger problem is the fact that he's lied so much. He's lied so much over time that he doesn't even remember his lies. Right. And I think he's when he's speaking, he's second guessing every word that comes out of his mouth because he doesn't remember what he said five minutes earlier. Right. So is it a cognitive decline? Guaranteed. But more, he realizes after 30,000 lies to the American people since taking office, he knows that they're fact checking him on every single word that comes out of his mouth. Right. So he's afraid to open his mouth. And that's mm. why he stammers and he and you know, he double talks himself all the time, because he just doesn't remember what lie he spewed five minutes earlier. Did you happen to see the press conference yesterday where he was first uh, talking about the Woodward book and claiming that he did not lie to anyone, <laughs> even though we had his own words doing it? It seemed as though the reporters started to really question him, to saying, why did you lie to the American people? And he just goes on a filibuster. He just goes on a rambling, nowhere filibuster, and no one stands up and screams, you're lying. You're lying, That's Donald. Right. I talked about this in the House Oversight Committee. I said, you need to stay on message. That's how Donald Trump kept me as long during the investigation as he did. It's why I lied to Congress and changed my statements as I was reading them the first time I went in for the investigation. Did you think you were going to get away with it? 100%. Okay. 100%. Because I was told by Trump and by his lawyers and by Ivanka and by Jared and by their lawyers and my lawyer, stay the course. You have friends in high places. Donald will never let anything bad happen to you. And I was like, okay. I justified my actions. Eh, what's the big deal? So I said that we only talked about the Trump Tower Moscow deal three times, when in reality, I spoke to him about it 10 times. What's the big deal? It's a failed real estate project. So what your mind starts to do is it, start, it starts to justify your bad behavior. Oh, it's not really material. It doesn't matter. Guess what? It is material to the American people. It ties in to Russia. Remember, Donald Trump's message was always, there's no Russia. There's no collusion. I had nothing to do with it. It's not me. No, no, no. It was you. It was all you all the time. Nothing goes on at the Trump Tower. Nothing goes on in Washington without being directed by Donald Trump. When you were doing the stuff for the money for Stormy Daniels, writing the check and not getting paid back, did you know that was illegal to do? Is it really illegal? I don't know. 
what the illegality here, interestingly enough, is not so much on my side. I participated. I owned I owned what I did and I ended up going to prison in part, if not mostly because of it. But the real illegality is on the president and on the campaign. So the Trump organization takes it as an expense when he knows it's not an expense. They were paying me back my own money. I was never part of the campaign, but yet I was still charged under a campaign finance violation. But of course I knew that what I was doing was wrong. It was also wrong to lie to Melania, which he had me do so often. Anytime that there was one of these allegations, what would he do? He would turn around and he would get me to get them to recant their testimony, get it on paper, send it upstairs to Melania so that she could see from the woman that there was no affair, that it was all a lie, that somebody's just trying to take advantage of poor Donald. And what about Melania? Do you think she believed any of your bull? Zero. None. Zero. Melania is one smart cookie. She, she understands, but she had enough class not to turn around and to throw it in my face. Instead, every time she saw me, she was kind and she's, she's a good person. She's caught herself in a situation that rest assured, she's not happy about. And is she free from him once he's out of office? I, th I, think, she's, I think she's gonzo. I think she's gonzo the day that she's out. I think this is a financial relationship at right. this point. Does Donald have anything to do with Barron? Well, you know, look, I, I don't know. And, and I hate to talk about a child. It's, it's not fair. But let, let me say this. Don Jr. used to always say, I don't want to be anything like my father. I don't want to be anything like him. What he wanted is a father who would take his son to the park and throw around a baseball or a football. Instead, whatever times that Donald would spend with Jr., he would take him to construction sites to pick up nails that weren't bent. He would have him go with him collecting rents from various different buildings over the years. And it was always work related. There was no father son moments where they sat down and they shoot the shit. Instead, it's a strange type of relationship. It's almost like not father and son. It's more like a big brother type that doesn't care about you. Yeah, and I can't help but feel bad for those kids. I don't know how you grow up in that family. You know, you read stories about how horrible he was with Donald Jr. for such a long time that they had a horrible relationship. And how did he switch and come around to becoming the number one? Even the children have this burning need for their father's affection and attention because they never got it as children. So even Don, Ivanka, and Eric were always sort of competing with one another at work in order to have daddy time. Now, Ivanka got the most because she's the most similar to him in terms of the showmanship. But Don Jr. is doing exactly what his father did. Five children, now divorced, you know, have had affairs behind his wife, who's a sweetheart. I know her very well. And in essence, when was the last time he went to a ball game? He's too busy running onto the campaign trail, spewing ridiculous nonsense with Kimberly Guilfoyle. Of, I mean, the whole thing is crazy, but he's doing it in order to feed, one, his own ego, and two, because his father is finally, for the first time, giving him some attention and not calling him a loser and a person who has the worst fucking judgment of anyone he's ever met. It is a relationship that I don't understand. It's certainly not how, how 
I grew up, it's not the relationship that I have with my father or the relationship that my children have with me. I live for them. He wants them to live for him. Let's talk about your kids and your wife, if you don't mind, because, you know, I was very uh, fascinated by the amount of times in the book that you say that all of them, your son, daughter and your wife, asked you to stop working for him and you simply wouldn't. And as I talk about in the book, I was part of the cult. I wasn't just part of the cult. I was at the top of the cult chain. And why I cared, I have no idea. Why 38% of this country cares and accepts the lies and the bullshit that we have to deal with, the chaos, the divisiveness. You know, my grandmother was born in Buenos Aires. And I said to him right after the Mexican statement, well, what did you think was going to happen after making a statement that Mexicans are rapists and drug addicts and murderers, but some are fine people, right? My grandmother's from Buenos Aires. How in the world can you possibly make a statement like that and think that it's okay and that there's not going to be severe repercussions? And his comment was, I don't care. I don't care. The business will be fine. I don't care. I'm not living forever. If that means the kids get a little less, they'll get a little less. But this is much more important. And there was no talking to him because I said to him, well, what's important to denigrate Mexicans, right? To denigrate another group of people. He did the same thing with the Muslim ban. I said, you can't ban a religion, right? You know, if you want to ban people from Syria because there's an uprising, okay, that's one thing. And I think a lot of people in America would have gotten behind you on it, but you can't ban an entire group of people simply because you think that every Muslim is a member of ISIS. It's no different than the lie he spewed. And I'm saying this emphatically. It is a lie when he said right after 9-11 that he saw people in New Jersey dancing on cars from in a Muslim community, enjoying the death that took place on that horrible day. When you would go home, would you say to Laura, would you say to your kids, I can't believe what he did today? He did this, you know, did you see the thing he did on the escalator with the Mexicans? No, no. Did your wife ever, did she ever see it and then say? They did. And what would they say to you? What would they say? They would bring it up all the time. And I tried to set up from the very inception. What I do at work is none of your business. What I do with you, that involves you. I cannot be reprimanded by my wife and children every single night for the things that I'm doing for my boss. Knowing that they're wrong, that was my job. And if I wanted to keep my job, then this is the way I had to act. This is the behavior that I had to follow. Now your wife and your kids, are you, is it great to have this time home alone? Even though, you know, you're like all of us, you can't really go out. Um, you know, are you able to explain and, and, and give your, your kids and your family all the time that they missed with you? Yeah, I mean, you know, you could never make back up those 15 months. Um, and it hurts. It, it's, it's not that you come home after an event like this and everything just goes back to normal. It does not. You know, there's, a, there's an emptiness that you feel. There's a sadness that takes over. It's almost like, you know, people, I've just, some people have said, well, you have a broken heart. No. I have a shredded soul. Mm. My, so my soul hurts. I told this to you when we were together yes. in Otisville. I missed my wife and my children every single day, 
every second of every minute and every minute of every hour. I was always there for them as much as any father could be. It's one thing that people wrote about in, um, as they were telling Judge Pauly things about me. People think that I'm this bad guy 24 seven. I was bad when I walked through the doors of Trump Tower. I was bad when I was doing things on behalf of him. But thousands of people will tell you whether I've known them for four decades or 40 minutes. I helped anyone and everyone I'm not the person that people think that I am. I didn't walk around like Ray Donovan with a baseball bat. And if you said something, you know, you're going to get, you know, clipped or hit in the head. That's not who I was. Mm. When I first got a subpoena to testify before the House um, Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, I responded back to them. Thank you for your invitation, but no thank you. I then got a phone call that Mr. Trump wants you to come to Washington. He wants to see you. So I went to the Oval Office and I was with Jay Sekulow. Donald turned around and said to me, what are you doing? I want you to testify. There's nothing to hide. There's no Russia. There's no collusion. So I turned around and I said, this is not going to be easy. He goes, but you could handle it. He goes, just remember, there's no Russia. There's no collusion. So I knew what he was saying to me because as I talked throughout disloyal, he speaks in code, mm. just like a mob boss. He was telling me to stay on message, do whatever you can do in order to downplay whatever connection that there was with Russia. Right. And when he told me to do it, and then all of a sudden I started to realize, whoa, whoa, whoa. The guy who I said that I would take a bullet for, I would have. But one thing I wouldn't do is take a bullet from the guy who's pulling the trigger. And I was like, this is now a real eye opener. It's time now for me to open my eyes when I look at my wife and my daughter and my son and I see the sadness in their eyes and the pain that they were going through. And when the feds came with this ridiculous 800 page warrant, my apartment, my law office and my safety deposit box, they took 14 million documents from me and they found nothing. They found nothing. And what do they do? They bring up a, a tax charge. Really? I want the truth to be told. And it's one of the reasons for this podcast. There's so many lies that were told about me, starting with Prague and coming all the way to the second incarceration of me, the remanding of me because I refuse to allow them to violate my constitutional rights. And that's one of the things that over the course of this podcast that I'm going to bring up and I'm going to talk about all of the things that took place in my life because I am seeking penance and I am seeking justice all at the same time. Mm. So anyway, Rosie, I can't thank you enough for your friendship, for the letters the compassion that you have. I don't know if, if roles were reversed, if I would have been as human and as wonderful as you were in sending that, just that eloquent and beautiful letter to me. But one way I will make it up to you, and we've talked about it, when this COVID is over and we're all able to go out and do things, I told you that I make the best lasagna in the entire planet. And I want you to come over and I'm going to make my special famous lasagna and we could sit and we can laugh. 
And we can talk about, hopefully, how well Joe Biden is doing as president of the United States of America. Please, God. Yeah, how things are finally getting back to normal. So, Rosie, from the bottom of my heart, I say I thank you. You're just a wonderful, wonderful person. And, you know, I apologize for any hurt that I may have caused you ever. We're all good with that. I just want you to know that, you know, it was helpful for me, too, in my life to think that there aren't, you know, bad men out out there who are coming to get me. And, you know, a lot of trauma from my childhood is brought up by scary men who who are out of control. And so um, I I was happy that I was able to see and access the side of you that I knew was there even before I I met you. And that that's the reason all those people wrote those beautiful letters for you for the judge and um, maybe why you were given that Otisville instead of something harder. And for that, you know, I'm really grateful. And I can't wait to come to your house, meet your kids and finally meet Laura in real life. You're just a gracious person. And I thank you again for that and for being my first interview on Maya Culpa. Take care of yourself and I'll text you next time I see you on TV. And, and don't forget, <laughs> think about that lasagna. All right, honey, take care of yourself. Be well. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you, Mike. Bye. Let's go now to my Twitter feed, where on each episode, I'll be reading some of your questions and comments. This Twitter question actually comes from Deborah Messing. How can a nation be so good at caring about 3,000 lives that ended 19 years ago and so bad about caring about 200,000 lives that ended this year? One was caused by the attack of an enemy who swore he'd kill us. The other was caused by the lie of a leader who swore he'd protect us. Deborah, you're dead spot on. I mean, everything that Donald Trump has said about the COVID-19 virus has turned out to be absolutely a lie. He lied bold-faced to the American people when he stated that he didn't know that it was airborne, that he didn't know that COVID-19 affected young people. He lied about every aspect of it and then did something even worse. He went so far as to argue with the professionals, with the people like Dr. Fauci, not believing the power that this COVID-19 actually has. And the next tweet comes from Celtic57, Kate. And she says, your book is amazing. I still don't understand how Trump has gotten away his whole life without being arrested. Will it ever happen? Well, Kate, I'm not really sure whether it will happen or not, but rest assured, every action that I took was at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. To this day, not only can I not understand this, but all lawyers can't understand this. How is it possible that I could be indicted, he be a co-conspirator, and I be the only person who ends up being arrested and incarcerated for the actions that I did at his request and for his benefit? Kate, thanks for asking that question. And each week again, we're going to reach out and we're going to take a look at some of the different tweets that are sent to me, and we're going to talk about them on the program. Before we conclude today's episode, I'd like to offer up a Maya culpa of my own. It relates to my conversation today with Rosie O'Donnell and the letter she sent me in prison. I told you earlier how I sobbed up reading her kind words, how I felt undeserving of her love and empathy. Why would she, of all people, come to visit me in prison 
when so many others had turned their backs on me in some combination of embarrassment, fear, and shame. She had nothing to gain by coming to see me. I could do nothing for her. I was at that moment the least powerful person in her life. But that's the thing about real kindness. It's not supposed to be transactional. But after a decade with Donald J. Trump, my view of the world was horribly skewed. Everything was about keeping score, winning and losing. Relationships were no different. In my Hobbesian existence, the world was truly nasty, brutish and short. All relationships were broiled down to what you could do for me and what I could do for you in return. Only the balance of power better end up in my favor. So in my lust for power and sick with Trump derangement syndrome, I began to see people only in the purest of transactional terms. You only mattered to me if you could do something for me in return. To be a macher, an insider, and a player meant to hold hard and fast to those rules. And for Trump, that is how he leads his entire life. The man has no friends. He has people who owe him favors or people he owe in return. Divorced from rational thought and blinded by my quest to become omnipotent, being close to Trump, I began to look life in a similar fashion. That those without power, without clout, or the ability to grant favors, they were losers, schnurrers, and schmucks, to be avoided and ridiculed at all costs. But then there was Rosie, visiting me in Otisville when I was at my absolute bottom, green jumpsuit and all, asking how I was, encouraging me to finish my book Disloyal. At first I couldn't figure out what she really wanted, but I was still semi-struck in the mindset that everyone was working an angle. Only most normal people don't live that way. True kindness is never transactional. It's in fact the opposite. It's the absence of expectation that is the truly kind act. She came to see me because she genuinely cared how I was doing. It's as simple as that. I must admit at the time that the idea that there were people who operated from a sense of altruism shook me to the core. But here's the thing. Kindness can hurt if the recipient's own heart is still hardened. Her kindness hit me hard because it showed me on such a deep and fundamental way how far I had strayed from myself. Her kindness broke me into a million pieces, shattering what was left of my ego and pride. And when I put the pieces back together, I rediscovered the man that I used to be, that I used to be before Donald Trump. The man who could look at his wife and children in the eye and not be ashamed. That is the power of kindness. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in, folks. But please check back Sunday at midnight, Eastern Standard Time, for an encore presentation of the Best of Maya Culpa, where you'll hear the notorious Stormy Daniels interview. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. 
So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa.